Upsell listeners, Helen Rosner here, one of your two hosts for this podcast from the Vox Media Podcast Network. My co-host Greg Morabito and I are here every single week talking with the most interesting people in the world about food and not food, and a lot of the people we talk to are food people and a lot of them aren't. This week, we're talking with Susan Feniger, or actually Greg is talking with her. It's just the two of them sitting down for a conversation that I'm super excited to listen to. Susan Feniger is an iconic chef and author, one half of Two Hot Tamales, which was a groundbreaking TV and book and Mexican food situation that really paved the way for a lot of modern cuisine, particularly in California. Greg's talking with Susan about what she has been up to in her multi-decade super influential career, how she got where she's going today, her whole story as one of the figures that made American dining into what it is. It's a pretty fantastic conversation. You're going to love it as much as I did. But before we get to that, Greg, it's a, a holiday week. Our, yeah. Our, our, this episode is dropping the day before Independence Day, and depending on when people are listening to it, they may be preparing to or at the very moment or having just finished barbecuing things. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely one of the great, you know, food holidays, I feel like the, the 4th of July backyard barbecue. Fire up that know? grill. Well, I wanted to talk to you about about grilling today. Mm-hmm. Specifically, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about hot dogs, which I have based on a, a tweet from the James Beard Foundation's Twitter account. They tweeted something a couple of days ago of a picture of hot dogs and it like triggered something really powerful in my animal brain. Oh. I can't stop thinking about hot dogs and as if on cue. It's it's as if it is a, a major national moment for consuming hot dogs or something. The New York Times just published a hot dog taste test. Okay, so I saw this hot dog taste test and I, I think it's an interesting move for the New York Times because it seems like something that's pretty bloggy and and you know, they they do they do some real fun servicey stuff sometimes, but this strikes me as something that would have been on like Serious Eats maybe a year ago or something. Um, I think Serious Eats has done a, a hot dog taste test, but I guess I'm sure. I guess yeah. the world really can't have too many. I, I was a little surprised that they only did ten hot dogs, but I guess that's a pretty decent assortment. I don't know. Ten, I, I don't I, know. I, I mean, ten is a uh, ten feels low, honestly. I feel like I wanted to see like sixty hot dogs ranked. You know, we ate every single hot dog. In the entire city of New York, here is our ranking of them. I was actually thinking about this. Like most of the other taste test guides and, and you know, no disrespect to taste tests. I think they're really fun. I always love to read them. As I was kind of Googling around, I mean, most of them are in that kind of range of like we tested six to 12 things. But I feel like maybe now, I don't know if it's just the way the Internet's trending or way my brain is feeling right now. I just want to have like more, a bigger number for any of this stuff. We tested know? 137 hot dogs. Our entire staff has nitrate poisoning and we are writing you this story from the hospital. Yeah, like, like whoa, like that, that's inconceivable. Like uh, 10 hot dogs, you know, I don't think I've ever consumed 10 hot dogs in an afternoon. But something like four or five is probably not out of the picture. If you were really hungry, if it was a really long barbecue, if you were getting really drunk or something, 10 hot dogs, you know, would be a lot, but it wouldn't be like, you know, uh, uh, something so shameful you could never, you know, think about it again. Well, so this is this was actually the real core of my question for you, actually, because as I was reading everything I could read about hot dogs, which is what I do when I decide I really want to eat something, I started thinking about what constitutes a serving of hot dogs. Like, I don't mean like oh, like the, on the packaging or whatever, but like if you go somewhere like 
a hot dog only restaurant. If you go somewhere like in New mm-hmm. York, we have places like Papaya King and Nathan's. People will order multiples, right? You get two yeah. hot dogs or sometimes you get three or four if you're feeling like really, really masculine in your hunger. Right. But I don't know. How many hot dogs is too many hot dogs? What's the right number? I would You would never really expect someone to order like multiple burgers, right? Definitely two hot dogs is the minimum order, I think, for a meal of hot dogs. Like one hot dog is like a snack, I think, you know? I think that three is, if you're hungry, if we're talking about papaya style dogs and that kind of New York hot dog, four is maybe where it starts to be like pushing it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I tend to believe in like you eat until you're not hungry anymore, but like it would never occur to me to get a second burger Mm -hmm. because it also would never really have occurred to me to eat more than one sandwich. Like I think of a sandwich as the fundamental unit, but then I was thinking about how Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin, famously eats two ham and cheese sandwiches for lunch every day, which like feels both really indulgent and also kind of pathetic, like just make a bigger ham and cheese sandwich. Or just make one sandwich that's tastier and you don't need to eat the second one or something. I, yeah, I don't know. Like I, I just, I feel like it, the centerpiece of your sandwich or sandwich adjacent meal. And like for purposes of this argument, let's just assume Let's not, like, unleash the Leviathan and just assume that a hot dog is sandwich adjacent. Like, there should just be one, right? There should be one unit. You should have, like, a large hot dog or a significant burger, right? And I uh, I'm, I, 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 I know. It's an interesting—I've I've never thought about this before. But here's, here's my sort of reasoning with the, the cookout thing— is that a cookout's a big production. It's a big pain in the butt to get it going. And it's really fun if you have all the right stuff. But it's like a whole day. You got to get the charcoals right. You got to get all the stuff. You got to get everyone there. Presumably you're cooking for a large uh, you know, crowd. It's like kind of some quasi form of camping a little bit, you know. And for all that effort, I feel like you should get more than one unit of a thing, you know. Like you should get to try a few things or you should, you know, get to... You should get more out of that. I can eat a hot dog in like 30 seconds, you know, Yeah. but the whole production is not should not be equal to like 30 seconds of enjoyment. You know, you should keep popping those in your mouth whenever you want. It's like a snack food that we have improperly identified as an entree. Yes. Yeah. It's like a tapas, a tapa. A t- a t- Remember when Burger King tried to introduce hot dogs and it totally failed? It's still on their menu, I think. Oh, yeah. That was like, uh, yeah, I just, I, I've never thought about that since they came out. Hot dogs are so And they were weird. awful, right? I don't know. Yeah. I never tried them. I mean, I know we, you know, as, as befits any proper food publication, we sent our meat critic out to try them out. And I don't think he liked mm-hmm. them very much. But like, hot dogs are weird the, if, throughout this entire conversation that we've been having, I just keep thinking about how weird hot dogs are. They're so weird. They don't fit yeah, any they, category. They're not a sandwich. They're not not a sandwich. They're not a snack food. They're not an entree. They don't make sense at Burger King, but maybe that's just because it has burger in the name. I think that they can't be either too fancy or too trashy, I think, somehow. Like, trashy is a part of, I mean, trashy is maybe a bad word to describe any kind of food, but like, uh, okay, like, Burger King, like fast food hot dog is kind of taking away from the spirit of what a hot dog should be. Hot dog should be from like an independent vendor 
or like a beloved sort of chain or mom and pop, like a papaya king, that kind of a thing. But that is you know? a fast food hot dog. Like Nathan's is a fast food hot dog. And it works. It totally works. Mm-hmm. Like it's Oh yeah, they are great. They're they're the ones I like to think at Coney Island are the best and because of the sea salt air or something, but that's probably just just my mind playing tricks on me. You know, I actually think you might have just nailed it. I think that the deal with a hot dog is it's gotta be contextually appropriate and a burger transcends context. Oh yeah, burger is just a it's America. It's it's everywhere, you know. But like yeah. a hot dog, like you wouldn't I mean, you would. I mean, people have. It's a thing. But, like, you wouldn't, like, sit down in the dining room with a hot dog in a bun on your porcelain plate, right? And, like, eat it with your napkin on your lap in the dining room with your family. Like you, No, you, no. You eat a hot dog in a backyard or you eat a hot dog at a baseball game or you eat a hot dog in a park or at the beach or, like, on the go in a major city when you've just bought a questionable hot dog that will probably give you listeria from a street vendor. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 got to be an on-the-go paper plate or one of those little paper boats or just a napkin. It's an outside know? food. It's an outside food. Yeah. A hot dog is an outside food. It's, are you going to make some hot dogs this I weekend? I am going to make myself invited to a barbecue where I am going to make sure that hot dogs happen. Because another uh. rule with hot dogs, like I love grilling. I love firing up the old grill and yeah. I love I love nothing more than getting into fights with people who have gas grills and telling them that they are full of shit because they should be grilling over charcoal. But um, I... I believe that a hot dog tastes best if someone else grills it for you. Oh, ah, that is a great hot dog rule. Yeah, that's that's my life hack for hot dogs is make someone else make them for you and then receive the hot dog gratefully and cover it with whatever condiments you feel like you need to cover it with. We are joined by Susan Feniger, who is a titan of the L.A. restaurant scene. You might know her if you live in the L.A. area from Border Grill. Exactly. Exactly, which is, you know, an essential L.A. restaurant, I'd say. Well, we've been here long enough, that's for sure. Yeah. How many years now? Well, we opened City Cafe Mm -hmm. on Melrose, a little, like, nine-table restaurant in 1981. So... And so we've been here huge a long time. City Cafe, huge restaurant for the time, right? Yeah, it was a I mean City Cafe we opened in eighty one and then City we opened in eighty four on La Brea and Second before La Brea had anything on it uh-huh. in an old carpet warehouse. And then we turned the little tiny city cafe into the first little border grill. The little border grill, yeah. wow. That was tiny little border grill. It was great. So have you had customers, guests that have been going through your restaurants for all those 36 years? Yeah, it does seem. Is that how long it is? I'm, I was born in 1982. I'm 35, so that's <laughs> okay, how I Okay, there you that go. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we actually have. I mean, we've had people that have been, you know, followed us from City Cafe days, which is pretty cool. Also, before I opened City Cafe, I worked at Ma Maison when Wolfgang Puck was the chef there. Wow. We, so, we had him in here a few weeks ago. Did you? Yeah, he was fun. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, that blows my mind. So you you were working like what? Like in the same kitchen as Wolfgang. Was he the boss at that he, point? Yeah, he was the chef. He was chef. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the owner. Patrick Tarai was the owner of Ma Maison. Wolf was the chef there and Michelle Maupuy was the sous chef. And, uh, you know, 
I remember I had come from Chicago working mm-hmm. at a restaurant called La Perroquet where I had met Mary Sue. Uh-huh. And I remember coming out and saying, you know, I don't know, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's, you know, <laughs> wait, our chef in at uh, La Perroquet was very strict, very, very strict. So when I started to work at Mommy's Own, that whole kitchen was way more lax. You know, we were all out partying every night, doing drugs. Well, you know, and this partying, was like partying. A c- celebrity kind of hangout. It place, was totally. Right? Yeah. I was, you know, I'm from Toledo, Ohio. So I would get tickets in every day and it'd be like Paul Newman, Jane Fonda, Orson Welles. It'd be like, oh my God. I called my mother. It's like, oh my God, you can't believe we came today. It was total. It was like one of the first really sort of hipper celebrity restaurants for sure. Wow. So was that your first gig out here in California? It was. It was. I had come from working at uh, this restaurant in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it was between working at my choices. I had sort of, I was very focused and it was on, it was either La Rangerie, L'Hermitage, La Toque, or Ma Maison. So just a and handful of places where you can. That I wanted, yeah. that I wanted to work. And I, I picked Ma Maison and I got hired there. So wow. it, was, it was great. It was very fun. And it was a cool, you know, it was sort of a dump place, but it was, the, it was sort of the young version of the hip places. So there was like Chasen's and Morton's and. Like that, but then Mame Zone was this sort of young, younger, you know, place that was sort of hip and hot. So when you came out here and, you know, you and Mary Sue came out here, were you always like, we're going to open a restaurant someday? Or was it just like, we got to get out of here, you know? No, you know, uh, Mary Sue wasn't here yet. She oh, okay. was in Chicago mm-hmm. still. I moved out, got a job at Mame Zone, worked at Mame Zone for a year and a half at that point, then got a job. Uh, through Mommy Zone, they helped me at um, in La Napoule at a restaurant called Loazis. And Loazis, then I moved over there, worked at Loazis for a year in the south of France, a three star restaurant. Worked there for a year. Mary Sue ended up in Paris. She had stayed in Chicago. We ended up literally going to France within a month of each other without having had conversation about it. She was in Paris. I was in the South. Some kind of weird brain sink there or something. Yeah, something. It was was interesting. So she was in Paris maybe two weeks before I arrived in Paris. And then I went down to the South of France. And we ended up in France at literally the exact same timing. Wow. Yeah. How was your French back then? Uh, Well, I had taken, you know— Uh, French in junior high and, you know, and high school. So it was actually interesting because I didn't have that much French, but I had taken it in school. So my basis for French is still way stronger than my Spanish, even though I speak way more Spanish in terms of Uh, kitchen Spanish. But it's too bad I didn't have my basis in Spanish because Spanish is really what I need. Well, yeah, well, you you, you you probably speak it very well now, right? I speak lots of swear words and very few <laughs> verbs and improper congr- conjugation, I'm sure, but I still speak it and get by. Okay, so you guys are in France in different cities, uh, yeah. and then did you connect? Did you say, let's— We, d- we did. When, uh, when Paris closed in August, Mary Sue came down to visit— and spent a couple weeks down there. And then she went back up to Paris. I was still working. And then when the south of France closed for the season, which I don't know, maybe it was October or something, we closed for a month then. I left and then went to Paris. 
and I was sort of then going to be on my way back because I had run out of money. I wasn't getting paid at all. Mary Sue was getting paid under the table. She had to go into, she was in a two-star restaurant called Olamp in Paris. And she had to go downstairs to the basement with the owner, you know, and hope nothing happened and get her money under the table and, you know, and go back up. So I literally was making no money. Maybe it's because if three stars, you wouldn't get paid. I don't know what it was. Yeah, maybe that still sort of applies in some parts of the the world. Yeah. (laughs) And so, you know, I went went back up there. We then... uh, we stayed, Mary Sue had, I think, she had, I think, slipped down those stairs and broke a bone in her back. And it was right when Mitterrand was coming in power. And I think they got nervous that Mary Sue was an American not working legally. So she stopped working there. I had come up. We ended up spending a month in a great kitchen together uh, called, it was Patrick Tarai who owned Mamezon, his uncle had a huge catering business for all the government people called Potele Chabot. So we ended up spending a month in this catering kitchen, which was very cool, and then cooking at night. And that last month was sort of fun. And that's when we decided, I'm sure after like three bottles of wine, that we should open a restaurant together somewhere in the United States. So what was it about French food? Why did you want to go and cook around there and, and get to know it, dig, well, the, dig into it? That was, you know, late 70s, and it was all about the French kitchen at that point. And all the training. I'd gone to culinary school. You know, your training, the basics were to train in the French kitchen. And, you know, it was sort of what you did back then. So Mm -hmm. I worked at mainly in French restaurants in this country. Um, I worked in a French restaurant, you know, in upstate New York and then in Kansas City and then Chicago and South and L.A. and then south of France. And it was just what you did. Country French stuff. But you guys didn't ever dream of opening a French restaurant together? That wasn't a part of the, the plan? It really wasn't. It really wasn't. I mean, I think both of us were really drawn to the country French cuisine. So like cassoulet and pot au feu and, you know, that sort of confit of duck. Hardy stuff. Hardy stuff. And then when, um, I think then when we, so Mary Sue went back to Chicago. I came out to L.A., and started literally got back on a Friday, Monday morning. I started back at Mame's own because uh, I had no money. Mm-hmm. And Wolf had already opened Spago. And then um, before I had left for South of France, some people that I knew who owned LAI Works were wanting to open up a little tiny cafe and said, you know, why don't you come instead of going to France, come here? And it's like, no, I don't think so. A yeah. little cafe on Melrose versus going to the south of France. So I went there, and they had opened up an espresso bar, and I started working at Mame's Zone in the morning, going to this, this little tiny cafe and putting on a special off of a hot plate. The first special I ran there was pickled veal's tongue with a lobster sauce and sautéed pears. Wow. And that was what? that was off of a hot plate at that kitchen. And so I started I, I started to take over the kitchen there and work days at Ma Maison, nights there, prepare for the next day. And, and, you know, I did that for about six months. They made me a partner. I decided to leave Ma Maison. I, you know, called Mary Sue at some point and said, you should come out and visit me here. And she came out. I had two hibachis in the parking lot in the back one hot plate. And I said, you should just stay here and do this restaurant with me. And she was like, if we put an oven in, I'll consider moving out. 
So I did. Wow. And that was the beginning of City Cafe. So did you just have kind of autonomy in the kitchen? Could you just do whatever you want? Totally. I mean, the whatever the dish was you described sounds like uh, a real original there. It, you know? Well, it was actually something from the Perroquet. Oh, uh, okay. You know, it was uh, <laughs> not original at all. But yeah, it, it was. I, you know, had definitely started off very French, you know, like exactly like that. pot au cassoulet, confit. And we had done a couple things like moussaka at that restaurant. And, you know, I'm sure I did stuff from Ma Maison. Mary Sue moved out. And um, after about eight months, I took my first vacation or after a year, I don't know what, took my first vacation. And I went to India and spent two and a half weeks in a kitchen in India and came back. And we started putting on a couple Indian dishes on the menu, like a potato budgie and a you know, different chutneys and a curry. So now our menu had confit of duck, you know, potato pea curry, potato budget, cassoulet. So now it was starting to be mixed up. Mary Sue ended up taking a trip eventually to Thailand. She came back. We put a couple of Thai dishes on the menu. And, and people ordered, ordered them and, yeah. and dug it? Yeah. That is so cool. I, I mean, I just looking up the history of that restaurant recently, I found something. I guess you guys... Brought, brought it back for one night or a few years ago, right? We do every, every year. leap year. We do okay. city night okay. at one of the restaurants downtown. We do city night. We do a whole city menu. It sells out. It's a very fun evening for all for people who were city fans. That's it's a so very cool. cool evening. I, I guess it was Jonathan Gold who wrote something about how this this was back, and he kind of described it as like, well, he said, uh, the barriers have become permeable, you know, to all these different kind of cuisines. Yeah. You, you were throwing them on there. And it, were you thinking about authenticity or were you like, this is uh, our, is it an interpretation? Is it a fusion? What what was the, what was the vision there? Yeah, no, no, for sure it was authenticity. That was a big thing for Mary Sue and I is that we wanted to do authentic no matter what it was. So if it was Indian or Thai we wanted to do dishes that we had either one of us had learned from someone. Ideally, when you're in the country is the most amazing way to learn it. But something that someone's mother or grandmother or grandfather, someone did and just try to do it as well as they did it. So we weren't, you know, at that point, we were just absorbing. It's not that different than now, but we're just absorbing information constantly. But I think we felt like... There's so many generations that have perfected things so well. We just need to learn that cuisine, that right. culture, understand it. And not we weren't looking to try to create new things. We were just trying to recreate what was being done forever. It's interesting. You know, this is such a hot button issue right now in the food world, this idea of people cooking foods from outside their culture. And it seems like a lot of people, a point of tension is when people try and do an upscale version of some homemade dish or, yeah. you know, they try and imprint some other thing on it, you know. Um, and authenticity is a is an idea that is a, also kind of hard to to pin down exactly. But that's interesting to hear that from the, the start that, that was kind of what you guys were thinking about was, you know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in the, you know, I think we've loosened up more now as when we were in the kitchen, that was absolutely where we were at. It's like, we didn't want, so even, for example, like with the Mexican kitchen, we didn't want someone just taking like a bar of achiote and putting it over a piece of fish. I mean, 
It was like, if we're going to do a pabil, then do it in the way that it's traditionally done at the same cooking method style. That's the way it was sort of meant to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we used techniques that we learned, like, let's say a dish like pozole. You know, you might be in Mexico and they might do it with pork loin. Well, if from the French kitchen and training, you sort of know that pork butt would be way better because you could stew it and slow cook it. It would take the flavors on. So maybe we would change the cut of meat, knowing what cooks better than someone who's a home cook might know. But the method of making the, you know, pubeal or making the base or making, you know, a mole, you know, or in a, you know, making a Thai red curry or an Indian budgie, how how those spices are used, how they're cooked, how they're heated, what's, you know, sort of those elements are all things. I still feel that way pretty strongly. If I was a young cook coming up, I'd be learning everything I could about whatever cuisine it was from people who've been making it for centuries and learn that and just do it as well or, you know, or improve upon it, but do it as well. I think that's an amazing way to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So you just kind of explained what the sort of culinary focus and what your approach even back then was. Um, but the restaurants that you as a duo opened, what was like, what was the other X factor? What was like the dining room? Like what was the priority of like, was there a, was it a scene? Was it a party? Was it a, I mean, like how, when you put together a restaurant, yeah. what are the things you think about in the front of the house and, and the, the dining room? I think way back then, if we go way back. So our part, original partners were the owners of LAI Works. So Gay Garardi and Barbara McReynolds. They were very immersed in the art community. So we, I think, had a huge influence of the art world. So people like, you know, and, and they just all oh, the Joy Silverman who had um, lace, I think it was called, photography gallery downtown. Uh-huh. Back, you know, and Greg Gorman. And we were just, we were Allie Willis. We were sort of in a world of artists. And so, um, so much of the design part and feel of our restaurants was connected into it being, you know, and they were quite creative. They were designing all their glassware like these I have on. Oh, those you know? are, wow. Yeah, these are LA I was noticing. Yeah. Those are some very, very cool frames there. And and they're, you know, they were wildly creative. And so that combination of their aesthetic and then I had convinced my ex-husband, who was Josh Schweitzer, who was an architect, and he was living in London, had just come back from London, was in Kansas City. And I called him and said, look, we're going to open up a restaurant at some point in the next whatever year. Come move to L.A. Don't mm-hmm. go to New York or don't go back to London. Come move to L.A. and design our restaurant. That's... And it was, you know, he didn't, the people from L.A. I works didn't know him, but he ended up showing up like four, five, six months later. And he got a job in Frank Gehry's office. And six months later, we opened up City, and he designed it. And our aesthetic, you know, we ended up with, for sure, creative-looking spaces that I think had, like at City, the focus was, it's going to be very simple, very modern, and the food, and the focus was going to be on the food. And we, at that point, I remember we took a trip to um, Coors China, I think it was, and 
you know, looked at colored china that was dipped on both sides like Fiesta Ware uh-huh. and put our little knife and fork logo on there. And uh, they had these little tiny things that were small, little, tiny, tiny dishes that were basically color samples for people to come in and pick their colors. And we decided to take four of those and put them on the table that had salt, cracked black pepper, fennel seeds, and I think chili flakes. Because in India, there's always stuff on the table like that. And that was, those were from the little paint chips. They were like, what? And we used, many of the dishes that we chose from them were dishes from the airlines because we wanted to do little small plates. So we took dishes that they had from the airlines and had them dip them in colors and So I think it was a very exciting creative process at the time. And all of us involved, I think, had our own sort of creative input to give. That's so cool. Kind of collaboration. It was fun. So that's kind of a weird question, but when you're talking about all these details, I mean, it's so it's exciting to hear them and hear how it all comes together. Did you like document all this stuff? Do you take photos like, you know, of all these little things? Do you have them somewhere? Do you have artifacts and that kind of stuff? Well, we have um For sure, we've got some. I mean, one of the coolest things was when we were opening City. So our first restaurant was City Cafe. Then when we were opening City, what was really cool was that we got a telephone call from KCET, and they wanted to do—they were doing a show called Turning Points, and they wanted to follow us for like six weeks while we were under construction— And initially, you know, we said, no, 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 we're way too busy. Forget it. And then, like, we must have talked to a couple different people, you know, who, whatever, who were in the entertainment industry or something that probably knew through the LA Iowa's people who said, what, are you guys crazy? Call them back and have them follow you. So we did. So for the next six weeks until we opened and through opening night party, they documented the whole thing with a thing called turning points. So we have like a, I don't know how long it is. It, I mean, it's like I'm a sure, documentary. A basically? documentary. And huh. it was like a, an hour thing of three 20 minute things of different people at turning points in their lives. Wow. It's very cool. Is that public? Can you watch it? Is it out there? I don't know. Okay. I, we I'll, have I'll it. Some... It might be on I don't know before if this before this runs, I'll see if it's out there. Yeah, I don't know if that's cool. something you you would want to watch, but you know, I yeah, I mean, it's your fans, cool. You know. It was cool. It was very exciting to see it happen. That's so. That's and after very it was a great thing to have of like back then of all that stuff that happened thirty six years ago. Wow, it so was, it was pretty exciting. Was that like your reel for you know the Food Network, which would eventually come? I don't know what like yeah. six or seven years down the road after uh, that. Probably, yes, I don't remember what year Food Network started, but probably eight or nine years ago. But no, I think, you know, we must have gotten asked to do, I can't remember what it's called, something like Chef for a Day or something on Food Network. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know why, but we got at, you know, because we had done stuff like we had done, I think we had already done like Cooking with Master Chefs. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we hadn't done that yet with Julia, but we did something with uh, PBS. And we had gotten, you know, we'd gotten our first gourmet write-up and our first Bon Appetit write-up. The big national Yeah, we'd gotten there. it. So uh-huh. we got asked to do a thing. Food Network just had started, asked to do something like Chef for a Day or something. We went on, did that, or maybe it was five days of that. 
And then they asked us if we would want to do a show. And we were like, yeah, okay. So we literally, we uh, came up with the name Too Hot Tamales. It's such a good name. It was good, right? Especially that it's T-O-O. Yeah. Of course, and we've used that forever. That's like, still so clever, I think, though. You know, it was fun. It was it was fun because, of course, afterwards it was like, of course, too hot. Yeah. Right, right. So, so, so it was good. We can't. I mean, they had come up with names like South of the Border. Was like, no, I don't think so. That's like Taco Bell. I don't think we're doing that. You know, right? And, but it was a that was a very fun time with Food Network. You know, we were totally crazy busy with City Cafe. Our little That was our first board of grill. Little City Cafe became our first board of grill, city restaurant. And then we had open board of grill Santa Monica. And then we started Food Network. And that was, we were going to New York, filming six shows a day, five days a week. So 30 shows a week oh we God. were filming. In New York? In New York. So we were gone for five days. We filmed 30 shows at a time. And we ended up over the, whatever it was, four-year period, five-year period that we were on when Food Network first started, we were on like six times a day. We filmed 460 shows of Two Hot Tamales and Tamales World Tour. That is it a was crazy. staggering number of television hours. It was crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Was it a challenge to keep coming up with stuff to cook and do for all those episodes? I mean— Yeah, I guess it was. But, you know, we were so excited. And plus, we would go to New York. We would start at, like, 7 in the morning. We'd film—we'd finish filming, like, 5 or 6 in the evening. And then Mary Sue and I would go out and party all night because it was like, oh, my God, this is a short day. Because, you know, when we were in L.A., we'd be at work at 7 and be done at, like, midnight. So— we were like on vacation for five days while we were filming. So it was. Wow. You know, um, nowadays, like a Food Network star is a very specific kind of career entity, I feel like. But back then it was kind of a new thing. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Back then it was, you know, this was it was educational. I mean, ours was fun. We had a good time, but it was totally about educating and teaching people cooking. For sure. That's what those shows were. And. And, you know, you did that along with your career of having restaurants. Wow, yeah. Did you notice any kind of immediate, uh, you know, would people stop you on the streets yes, and say, yeah? for sure. Now, Food Network wasn't as big then, but no question, especially on the East Coast, especially in New York or when we would go on cookbook tour, people in the East, you know, in New York, it was amazing. I mean, literally, you'd walk down the street and because we were on, you know, at three in the morning, midnight, nine o'clock, you'd be like, people, the firemen would be like, oh my God, there's the two hot tamales. It was for sure very strong visibility. And and there weren't nearly as many shows on. So people were just catching up. I think it was in like 30 million homes. So it wasn't They're catching huge up, at yeah. that. And so, it, yeah, for sure. And, and when, there's no question, when we were on Food Network, there was a big, people were huge, fans of Food Network. So it was, you know, it was a fun time, you know, great for your ego, for sure. <laughs> when you were like a young chef or a kid or anything, did you ever want to be like that kind of famous on TV kind of thing? No. Did you think about it? No, 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 no. I was, you know, a good Midwest Jewish girl, you know, hardworking. And well, it sounds like you're still hardworking. Yeah. 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 And we did that, you know, the other thing that was sort of cool at that time, we ended up, I can't remember when it was, but we decided at some point we wanted to approach um, Ruth Seymour, who was head of KCRW. 
we approached her with an idea. We wanted to do a five-minute political food show. And, you know, we wanted to talk about sustainability, and we wanted to talk about frozen food and what, you know, mm-hmm. connotated frozen. And we and we invited her for lunch over to Border Grill Santa Monica, and we pitched her this idea. And she said, like, no, that's a t- we're not doing a political food show. You want to do a show? I have a slot Saturday morning, half hour, you can do it. Come up with a name and blah, blah, blah. And we did. But literally, we had five days. We came up with the name Good Food, and we started our— KCRW show. And the person who was the intern at that time is Jennifer Farrow, who oh, is yeah. now uh-huh. head of KCRW. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm so ignorant. I did not realize that good food was like this thing that you guys started. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it's still, still, still yeah, going we, strong. Yeah. We had Evan Kleinman on our show, you know, to She's great. be a you know guest on it. And then eventually we stopped and she started, it took it over. That is... That's so rad. Yeah, you guys it was are cool. so um connected to the food, like really deeply connected to kind of the worlds of food and food media and the way that they yeah, kind of we, flow in LA. Yeah. So, you know, as a food writer, you have to write about kind of like duos a lot. Um, you know, chef restaurateur or, you know, co-chefs and you know, sometimes they I think it's very rare that they last as long as, you know, the partnership that you guys have. Yeah. And your partnership is very un- interesting and different than a lot of these kind of typical partnerships for, you know, you guys were at different points married to the same person, for mm-hmm. example. Which I is, do everything first and uh, then okay. try it out for her and then tell her it's okay. She can, okay, you can have this. It's <laughs> great. <laughs> you guys have opened, I think, um, you know, a number of restaurants together. Some, you know, you've done your own thing, which uh-huh. I think is kind of unusual for that kind of duo. Yeah, and, for sure. Although just, think of the many songwriters that have done that. Yeah. That's that's a you know, that's a very good analogy. That still I mean, are part of the group and go off and do their own. Wow! And you guys have tried your hands at so many different kinds of projects. Why does this relationship work? Like, how does it work? Is one person the idea person, the other person is the, the executor, or like, what is the? How do you describe your creative and professional relationship? Well, I th- you know we started off, you know we met at La Perroquet in Chicago, both line cooks both the first two women in that kitchen. And we were both, at that time, late 70s, women in French kitchens. So you had to be pretty driven to sort of move around and, you know. And I think we were, we we're both from the Midwest. You know, I think we we're both extremely hardworking. Um, you know, and I, I think we both allow... I, I don't know that it started that way, but certainly we were both cooks in the kitchen. She's, you know, German and very detailed. I'm not <laughs> German and, you know, way more sort of, you know, loose out there. I tended to lean more towards the chaos of the hot kitchen. She to- sort of focused more the cold kitchen and pastries, but we both did both. You know, I think we both knew the importance of both. And we both were very immersed in the business of running the business. I think over the years, I think we both, without talking about it, realized the need of we each had our own interests too. And initially, certainly in the kitchen, we collaborated and had similar ideas. We'd always go to the fish market together and produce. And eventually, you know, Mary Sue ended up having her first child. So her schedule shifted more. She ended up not being there at night and there more in the days. 
And so then as a result, that sort of pushed her a little bit more maybe into office, behind the scenes stuff. I ended up more operational. But so, you know, maybe it's sort of leaned that way. But we're still, you know, we both are very sort of hands on in all aspects of it. We survived this many years. I think we both have been in therapy quite a bit. You know, I think we both have, you know, take on our own responsibility for the stuff that we, you know, bring to the picture and the stuff that we have to deal with. And I think it's part of why we've been able to give each other breathing room to do what we want to do and and also start to do the things we're more passionate about. She's more passionate about certain things. I'm more passionate. We're on different boards of things that we're more pas- each more passionate about. I mean, I'm on the board of the Los Angeles LGBT Center. I'm on the board of the Scleroderma Research Foundation. Those are probably—I'm on the board of the Los Angeles Convention and Tourism. But, so those are the things that I'm more drawn to. She's on the board of, you know, Share Our Strength, um, the James Beard Foundation. So we've sort of leaned— in some ways, different directions. And we each have given that freedom, I think, which is why I think we've survived. Wow. That's, I mean, you guys are a model duo there in the, <laughs> the, the culinary world. You we, know? you know, know that we, you know, not that we don't disagree. We disagree on many things, you know, many things, you know, but I think we figure out when to give and take. When, you know, one of us gives up and one of us stands firm and We just, I think, have been able to figure that out. And certainly over the years have, you know, gotten to where at times we think like, you know, should we stay partners doing that? I mean, but I don't think we've ever really explored that to a place where either one of us had the interest in not not staying connected. Well, for the diners of Los Angeles, I think that's really cool, you know? (laughs) Yeah, it's it's great. It's it's great. It, It really is. And we, I think the fact that, I was able to go off and open, and and it was the first time in so many years where we started to actually do press and media separate. We'd always, anytime, we sort of said we wouldn't do things, like we wouldn't do Good Morning America or Today Show or any of those unless they asked us both. It's a package deal, yeah. And we really stayed firm on that for a long, long time. And, you know, when I opened Street, we had sort of said, okay, so I'm going to start to do stuff and you're going to start to do stuff. And now mm-hmm. we've sort of figured out how to each do separate stuff and still do stuff together. Well, it sounds like Street and Mud Hen were very personal kind of projects, too. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Well, that's I love that analogy of, like, that's the solo record, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Gar- definitely. Garfunkel does his thing and then, you know, they're back or whatever. Yeah. So— I'm actually not a huge fan of city rivalries like, oh, Chicago versus San Francisco yeah, or whatever. But right. they're unavoidable. It's just kind of how people talk about them. And, you know, I feel like there's been in the last few years, like there's been this maybe national narrative that's like, oh, L.A. is like the next big – it's the next big city. Guess what, New York? L.A. is coming up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, I don't necessarily want to propel that or in one way or the other, but I think it's good that if people are talking about many places and many great things that people are doing. But I'm just kind of curious over the years that you've been active in the scene, how do you think in a broad strokes way the L.A. scene has changed dining wise? Well, I think, you know, I think when you for me, since I've lived here for all these years and I also 
am very hands-on still in my restaurant. So I'm, I mean, even right before I came here, I was deep in short ribs. Yes, for the- <laughs> our listeners can't see this, but you are the first chef that's ever come to a podcast interview wearing chef's whites, <laughs> although they're not white. They are, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, so for sure, I'm still really, I was cleaning short ribs. Not that that's necessarily a good thing, but I'm still very hands-on in our restaurants. You know, at the airport, we have two, about a third one about to open. We have blue, yeah, so blue window, blue window and, and terminal three, and then border grill and international and one more to open that I can't talk about, but in the fall. Oh, okay. And then out in the hunt at the Huntington and the two in Vegas and downtown and our trucks and catering. So I'm you know, in those restaurants, I'm either cooking or quality control or tasting. I really, you know, feel like we're very hands-on. So um, what happens for me is I don't end up eating out as much in L.A. as like when I go to New York, you know, I eat out all the time. Yeah. So I'm much more aware of restaurants in San Francisco and Chicago and New York almost than I am in L.A. You, yeah, because you take a step out of it or yeah. something. Yeah, and, and you're there on work and free and that, and, you know, you've got evenings, so you sort, and you do that. In L.A., you know, you don't, you just work, or at least that's what I do. So, but I think L.A.'s, I love L.A. as a food seed. First of all, you know, it's an incredibly close community. You know, certainly as we were growing up in it, all of us, I wouldn't hesitate to call Wolf or Piero or Bob Spivak or any of the people that are in our business about a question, a concern. Did they know anybody? I mean, it was a very close-knit community. Very close. You know, and then, you know, Suzanne and Suzanne and Nancy. And it feels like it's a. it has always been very close. Now, maybe it's shifted a little bit now. I don't know. But, you know, I think there was something there that it didn't feel competitive. It just felt very, you know— very warm and friendly and sharing information. And, you know, the impression from the inside here was that that wasn't necessarily the case in New York or in San Francisco. It felt Uh like maybe it was much more competitive, but maybe that's just your view when you're in your own city looking out and judging the other cities. I'm not sure. But you can certainly see, you know, in L.A., One of the things is that, you know, you're so spread out and there's so many. I mean, you look at what Jonathan Gold used to write about, for sure, of all of the great little places all surrounding in the L.A. area, you know, tons of fantastic little ethnic and interesting restaurants. So I just think the um, I don't know, you know. I think the food scene is fantastic here. How does it compare, you know, how does it compare to New York or San Francisco? I mean, we're spoiled in L.A. As chefs, we have the most amazing agriculture and the ability to have all these unbelievable farmers markets that are, you know, all over the city every single day, you know, and farmer relationships with farmers in Monterey Bay Aquarium, even Northern California and the avocado you know, yeah. all the avocado groves that are here and citrus. And I mean, my backyard, I have a lime tree, a lemon tree, two orange trees, a plum tree. And I don't even, I mean, it's not like I have a big, huge backyard, but it's just, you know. It grows. It just grows. And it's just incredible. So, and even if you don't have a green thumb, which, you know, I don't, you know, you just, it's it's an amazing place to live in L.A. if you're in the food world. Wow. So Border Grill Vegas was such a hit. You opened another one. 
Yes. Got a pair of border grills in Vegas. We, we do. Mandalay Bay, we've been there now, like, I don't know, 17 years or something. And we love that. Absolutely love it. It's been fantastic for us. And we've also got over at the forum shops at Caesars. And, you know, that's been interesting. You know, certainly Mandalay Bay grew in a very quick way for us, you know, and forum shops, we're still seeing it grow, Yeah, you know, um, and Huntington Gardens, we just opened the Border Grill Taqueria out there. We opened Blue Window in the Chinese Garden, the noodles and dumpling, which we love. Um, we opened a little Blue Window sushi station in the 1919 Cafe there. And then out in the Rose Garden, we have this patio grill um, that Mary Sue and I designed the menu. It's just so many people go to yeah. the Huntington Gardens. I was blown away. I had no idea. It's the most beautiful spot. I just had no idea all these gardens existed where you could walk around. And, and of course, there's galleries and museums out there, but the gardens blow you away. I, yeah, I was just saying before we started chatting, my wife just got went there and had a wonderful experience. But it's like so cool because it sounds like a very interactive place where you just kind of amble around and then, oh, yep, there's three restaurants. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. There. You go out to the Chinese garden and there's this amazing pond. You sit outside and you have bao and dumplings and it's just, you know, noodles. It's pretty so cool. spectacular. So how much of your time is Vegas time? Do you go there? Usually I go to Vegas uh, usually once a week. Once I'll a go week? and wow. spend a day, you know, or if I don't go for a couple of weeks, I'll go and spend two days and I get there at like nine in the morning and I'm in the restaurant till like 10 at night. If I spend the night and then the next morning and then I leave like six the next day. Or if I go just for the day, I'll go like get there like eight in the morning and take like a seven o'clock flight home. And so, wow. So it's just kind of like, uh, it's like quicker than driving down to, you know, Orange County. Wow. That's so cool. You drive, you fly. No, no, no. I fly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Then it's really quick. Yeah. It's quick. Yeah. And even when you're stuck in the airport, you're, you know, you can work in the airport, work on the plane. That's fun. And we have great team at both places and amazing. We have amazing teams. I mean, from the very beginning, I feel like I remember our first staff meeting at City Restaurant. And, you know, Mary Sue and I had mainly been cooks in other restaurants. That's what we were. We'd never been, we'd never been sous chefs or anything. We both just worked in restaurants as cooks and learned as much as we could. And uh, I remember our first staff meeting saying to the staff, you know, most important thing is that all of our customers get treated with respect, whether they're celebrities or they're not, whether we're so jammed, you can't be snooty, you can't have attitude, you got to really, it's about the customer. And, and I feel like we've kept that philosophy always. And, you know, no matter how busy or how slow that, it's always about the people that work for us and the people that come to our restaurants. And whether it's a dishwasher or the VP of operations, everybody needs to be heard and listened to and respected. And everybody's as much part of the team. And without them, we'd have nothing. Wow. How many people are in your restaurant group? Uh, you know, well, we closed Border Grill Santa Monica after Sad. 27 years. But then yeah. that's a good run. It was a good run. years is forever. It, it was. Our lease was up. An old, old space, 
you know, big spaces. And we just decided to move on and maybe look for something smaller in Santa Monica. You're still thinking about Santa Monica? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. 27 years, that's a long time. Yeah. So um, I think we're probably at like, I don't know, maybe it's probably about 400 people, somewhere around there. Because we've got our trucks. We have our two trucks and our catering business. And, you know, and then we've got all the licensing deals that are pretty cool, but probably about 350, 400. Wow. So I guess it must have been about a decade ago you were on season two of Top Chef Masters. Yeah. And made it, you know, a really good— It was a good run. Good, really good run. Yeah, I raised a, a bunch of money. I can't remember if I did it for the Scleroderma Research Foundation or for the center, for the Gay and Lesbian Center. I don't remember. It was one of those, but I think I raised like $40,000 for it. So That's amazing. All I wanted to do was make it through round one, so I didn't lose in round one. Then I didn't care. Was it a fun, stressful combination of the two? You know— the once I said yes, because it was season two for Top Chef Masters, once I said yes, I thought, what the hell? Why did I say yes? Because then it was stressful for the next two months until we started. I was like, why did I do this? This was like the stupidest thing I could have ever done. I've just it's just not I've never been. I mean, I guess I am competitive, but I never think of myself that way. Even when I played tennis as a kid. I was sort of a good tennis player. Once I got into a tennis match, I'd lose because I just it's just not in my yeah, whatever. It, it looks like even on the master's level, it looks like everyone's really got to hustle and like cook their butts off and think super fast yeah, too. Yeah, for sure. But I think once we started, once the challenges started, then I honestly did not feel then it wasn't I then I wasn't nervous. It was be it was the like anticipation of like, oh my God, why am I doing this? And literally once, and I met someone who I never know. There were a number of people on there that I knew, but I did not know Tony Montuano from Chicago. And one of the first challenges, Tony and I got teamed together and he's, you know, a big time Italian chef. I know nothing about Italian food. Matter of fact, I just suck when it comes to Italian, but just not, it's not the cuisine I lean towards. And we got partnered together and we had a fantastic time and have made an amazing friendship from that. Oh, that's so cool. And we won. We won both both of those quick challenges. Mm-hmm. And once I did that, it was like, now nah, I don't even care. And that was the best way to approach it. I didn't even really care. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're, I mean, obviously you're competitive and you want to do it. But really, once that happened, there I wasn't. You know, I wasn't nervous. I didn't care. And at that point, it was like, okay, at least I didn't lose round one. Fine. I don't care. Whatever. Wow. Would you so, ever do that again? Or you think you've had your you I don't your think time? so. They asked me to do it again, oh, really? you know, and it was like, no, I, you know, made it up, made that much money, made it. I think it was number five. And like, and I lost on like literally one of the dishes from street that was like the most loved dish ever on the menu. And I lost with that dish, which blew me away. And uh, it was the Kaya toast. And it was uh, such an interesting thing. But they asked me to do it again. I was like, I don't think so. I judge. You got a lot of stuff. Yeah. I judge. I love judging. I'm not. It's just not my thing is to compete. And really, with Top Chef Masters, I competed mainly because it was for charity. So that's still where I would consider doing if it was for charity and raised awareness and that. But. To compete for compete's sake? No. Yeah. Oh, just that's not that, that my sounds cup of fair. Tea. That sounds fair. Well, Susan, we've reached the point of the show that we call the lightning round. All so, right. yeah, these are 
you know, we're going to ask you a series of questions and just the first thing that pops out of your head. Um, so to kick things off, you're driving down the freeway, you're listening to some music and you're singing along to it. What is it? Annie Lennox, why? The song is why? Uh-huh. Excellent. Okay, that's very good. Uh, I guess I can picture that. Yeah, I can picture that's like us. I think I know that song, right? That's, oh, it's yeah. like the greatest song ever made, ever written, ever. I mean, I can picture like why that would be a good one to sing out loud, you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so lightning round question number two. How many iPod cables have you bought in your life? Oh, not very many. Not very many. Not very many. I don't know. Yeah. I, and someone in my office buys them. Oh, good answer. You know? Good answer. Yeah. Uh, okay, so here's a, another lightning round question. I'm very curious to hear the answer to this. Do you think chili is a soup? No. I think it's a between a stew and a soup. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. It's on the spectrum there. Or a country. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's definitely a country. <laughs> definitely a country. Yeah. Uh, so if you uh, could choose another life other than the one you've chosen in a career path, you know, you if— it wasn't an option for you to be this chef, cookbook author, restaurateur, TV star. What What's the thing you would want to do? Either a therapist or politics. Very intense professions, it sounds like. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, those are all the questions we have for you, but... Uh, I'm so glad we got a chance to talk about this. As somebody who just moved to L.A., I think it's super fun to kind of like learn all this backstory right from just talking to you. And if our fans want to follow you on Instagram, what's your Instagram handle? Susan Feniger. Yeah. I think that's right. There you go. Yeah. And also on Twitter, it's the same, right? the same, yeah. 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 All right. You, you play along with the social media stuff. I, I try. You do a really good job. I try. I do Facebook Live, but... My partner of many, 22 years, um, actually my wife, but mm -hmm. of course we only just got married about a year ago. Oh, congratulations. And thank you. We got uh, married on Friday the 13th, which was, we learned out, we, we, we decided on Wednesday, two days before, that we were going to do it because uh, Liz's 94-year-old mother bugged us like six months before. I was like, when are you two getting married now that you can Wow. And we decided two days before, okay, if we're going to get married, let's do it Friday the 13th. We ended up getting married on Friday the 13th at the Children's Courthouse in East L.A. And the judge that married us on his lunch break told when we said we wanted to do it on the 13th, he ended up telling, and we're doing it in, in his courthouse with like hundreds of stuffed animals around there. And he ended up telling us this very cool story that Friday the 13th, in the days when the it was the matriarchs that ran the world, that Friday was the lucky day. It was the day of worshiping, and 13 was the lucky number. And when the patriarchs took over, it became the worst, most scary day, Friday 13th. So we love that story. Wow. That is a little gift to you on your wedding day. Yeah, That's it was. So cool. It was cool. Anyway, she tells me I shouldn't do those Facebook Live videos because I don't know how. To, she's a writer, director, and she said, you know, you don't know how to do it. They look terrible. You look like an idiot. Don't do those Facebook Live. But I just do it anyways. Uh, that's the right attitude <laughs> I have to have for yeah, that. Yeah. Well, Susan, thanks so much for stopping by. Thank you. Thanks so much. The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. 
Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener, you. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.